Por favor, entre su destinación. Por favor, no toques ese botón. Por favor, no toques ese botón. Vira a la izquierda. Recalculando. Vira a la derecha. Por favor, no toques ese botón. Vira a la izquierda. Recalculando. Vira para atrás. Por favor, vira para atrás. Vira para atrás. No toques ese botón. Mira, señor. No me estás escuchando. Tienes que mirar para atrás. Mira para atrás. Well, good morning. For the last three weeks in our series GPS, we've had one theme that just keep, keeps permeating all our messages, and that is that God leads. The Bible teaches that real clearly. We've, we've seen scripture after scripture where the Bible says that God leads us, especially last week. But there's another issue there other than God's leadership that has a bearing on where we are in life and where our destination is, and that is how well do we follow. Because for all of us, and for all of us who are Christ followers, we have God's assurance that he will lead us, but many of us are not really exactly in God's will today, and we feel that. And how that happened is this, that God was leading us at some point, and it wasn't that we, we didn't love God or that we didn't want his guidance, it's just that we reached a juncture where we thought we knew better than God, right? I'm going to turn here. I know this is just a small road, God, but I'll get right back. I just happen to feel this is better for me, and so we make a wrong turn, we wind up lost, And the question that happens at that moment, and this is what's so big for many of us here today, is, is where does that leave us? What does God do when we determine that we know better than he does, and we find out, God already knew, but we find out that it wasn't smart, and we've made enough bad turns that we're sincerely lost as relates to God's will? Does God do like Donald Trump and say, you're fired? Or, or what happens at that moment? Is it, is it possible to get back in God's will, or are we forever We are forever separated from our destiny. One thing I want to make very clear is that if you're a Christ follower, you will never lose that relationship, no matter how badly you get out of God's will. God did not receive you on the basis of your performance. How many weekends do I stand up on this platform and lead you in a prayer if you've never received Christ? When I, when I lead you to receive Christ, I don't lead you to perform any community service. I don't lead you to any particular church ritual. I just ask you to invite Jesus Christ into your life. Salvation is God's free gift to you, and you will never lose that. You will never lose that. We just sang. What better song could lead into this topic than what we just sang? By grace to be one of your own. I, I come to you in faith alone. That's exactly the message of salvation. So if you're a Christ follower, you can screw your life up 12 different ways, and God will still love you, and God will still take you to heaven. You won't enjoy the trip. And your eternity is going to, you know, what, how you live in eternity is going to have a bearing. See, here's the thing. I am convinced of this with all my heart. And I was just praying and I said, Lord, help me know how to say this today. I am convinced that for every Christ follower, God has a glorious destiny for your life. God wants you to do strategically important things in this world. I don't think, listen, I don't think that God saves any one of his creation to do something small. I am convinced that God... God brings us into his family, every single one of us, to do something great. You know, I don't want to just be good. I want to be great. Now, very quickly, I want, to, I want to make sure I qualify that so you understand what I mean. I'm not talking about being rich and famous. In our Western culture, to us, great means often being rich and famous. Lindsay Lohan is rich and famous. What she does is unimportant. Now, what that, you know, what that teacher does who's teaching special, special needs kids, what, what he or she's doing, that's important. 
That person's probably vastly undercompensated. But just remember this. Compensation isn't really going to matter in this life. What, the compensation that matters is in the life to come. You and I are going to only live here a few years. And, and we're going to live in heaven for eternity. And when we get to heaven, not, we're not going to all have the same standard of living. God is going to compensate people for what they did and how much difference they made in this world. But I'm convinced that for every one of us, God intends a glorious destiny. God wants each of us to do something strategically important to change the world. And his will is directly tied to that. When God receives you into his family, the very next thing that he wants to do is to get you on a path in which you will fulfill your destiny and do something strategically important in this world. But now here, here, here is the point. When we get out of God's will, we, we begin to diminish our effectiveness. How many of us have a feeling in our heart right now that God redeemed us to do something much more important than what we're doing right now? And, and, and so I want to talk to you about that today. We're going to go back to the Bible. and We're going to look at a man who was a great man, but because of some eye problems, and I'm not spelling the E-Y-E, we're talking about, you know, we're talking about the letter I, he had some eye problems in his life, he got really off the trail, screwed up royally, and we're going to see how that God brought him back into a place of effectiveness. My title today is called Recalculate, or Recalculating. If you have a GPS system, you know what I'm talking about. You can make a bad turn, and a GPS, your, your system will say recalculating, and you'll get a route that will get you to your new destination. And uh, my system just continues to say recalculating, no matter, no matter how many bad turns, turns I make. And, and I keep waiting for that voice to say, you're just too stupid to drive, and shut down. <laughs> His name was Peter. When Jesus was on the earth, you know, Jesus is God's son. He was God who became human. When, when the Bible says in Genesis 1, let us make man, that's the Trinity talking. God the Father, the person we know is Jesus, and the Holy Spirit. So Jesus has always been here. The, the, the Son of God has always been in existence. But man was in all kinds of, human beings were in all kinds of trouble because of sin. And God had to send his son into our world on a rescue mission of, to pay for our sins. And so the way that he did it was to become human and God at the same time. He had Mary for his mother. And, of course, he was divine God and man in one package. So he came into this world to redeem us of our sins and to begin his kingdom. Now, when our Lord walked the, 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 uh, you know, the, the, the roads of the world, he picked 12 followers who would, in essence, become the spine and the leadership of his church and, and ultimately his kingdom. Now, if I'd been picking guys, I wouldn't have picked them like the Lord did. I would have gone to the, you know, the universities and found the, bold, you know, the, the best and the brightest and the smartest guys but our Lord did something really different. He went down to the docks and he called, he called blue collar guys. He called fishermen. And uh, one guy was tax collector, which meant, and I don't mean that in today's, if, you, if you're part of the IRS, I'm not dissing you. I'm just saying, uh, those of you who are laughing are dissing, but I'm not dissing. <laughs> In Bible days, only the worst people would be tax collectors, and it was a kind of a national kind of thing, national pride thing. So the tax collectors, just, they were just the lowest of the low. So he called one of those. He called a guy named Simon that we would say is a bomb maker. He was a zealot. He was a radical. I mean, this, these are the guys that Jesus called. But he called one guy, there's no doubt about it, when you read the Gospels, and by the way, when I talk about the Gospels, I'm talking about the four books in the Bible that tell the story of Jesus. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. God wanted to make sure that we learned about Jesus, so he gave us four books, and we call them Gospels. 
When you read the four gospels and the story of the three years that Jesus was on the earth with this ragtag bunch, it's very clear that the Lord picked Peter to be the leader. God had gifted him to be the leader. He was a natural born leader. But we're going to see that there was a point in Peter's life where he failed seriously. And I want to talk to us all about that point because I am convinced that probably the most um, challenging, vulnerable time in your life, your walk with God, is at the point where potential meets destiny. I believe there are going to be two phases of your walk with God, your giftedness, and your work to do something great on the earth. We'll call the first phase potential. That's where you're learning. That's where you're developing. And then destiny is when you're basically called a center stage in the world to do the job that God has called you to do. For instance, let me give you an example of this. Moses was the greatest leader of the Old Testament. God called this guy to lead the Israelites out of Egypt and into Canaan, the promised land. Moses lived for 120 years, and his life is divided into three parts. The first 40 years of his life was Moses trying to do things on his own abject failure. Last 40 years of his life, he's leading Israel. There's a middle 40 years of his life in which the Bible says he was in the backside of the desert. Now, it's bad to be in the desert. It's really rough to be on the backside. For 40 years, God was honing Moses' potential. He was developing Moses. Moses was in that potential phase. And then the last 40 years of his life was his destiny phase. Now, some of you right now, you're in the potential phase. You're you're saying, I know God made me to do something, but I'm kind of frustrated because I'm not really there yet. If, if, If the world would just call me to center stage, I could do huge things. What's going on right now is God is developing the giftedness that he has placed in you. And for three and a half years, that's what God was doing through Jesus to Peter. Because Peter was watching Jesus. He was following Jesus. But Peter, for all of you who are sort of obsessive, compulsive, type A personalities, you understand that, you know, if you're like Peter, it's like if you've seen it once, man, you, you're ready to go. I mean, and, and Peter had seen Jesus do a lot of things, and he was excited. He knew Jesus. Peter understood that Jesus was calling him to a big destiny. He was very clear on that. And the Lord was teaching him. But Peter had this, this deal, and I have the same thing, and I, I've learned this in my life. The potential phase was really frustrating for Peter because he had a way of just sticking his foot in his mouth. He would make some progress, and then the Lord would send him right back to kindergarten. He would say something, and you know, he's like, now he's the leader, and then he says something dumb, and the Lord says, back to kindergarten, Peter. I mean, for instance, one day Jesus was teaching, and you know, he asked the disciples, you know, who, who do men say that I am? And they gave him some freaky answers, you know, you're, you're Elijah and this and that. And Jesus said, who do you say that I am? And Peter said, you're the Christ. That means the anointed one, God's solution for sin. You are the Christ, the son of God. And Jesus said, flesh and blood didn't reveal that to you, Peter. But my, my father, the spirit of God has revealed that to you. Well, the disciples were high-fiving Peter. Way to go, Peter, man. You got the right answer. Woo! You're really something. And Peter's feeling his ochre, as we say in Texas. A few minutes later, Jesus is telling them that he's got to go to a cross and die. And Peter now feeling like he has arrived. He's now at the destiny point. He says, Lord, don't even think about going to the cross. That's not for you. And Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. Within just a few minutes, Jesus said, you have God talking through you. A few minutes later, you got the devil talking through you, Peter. Back to kindergarten. How many of us know exactly what that feels like? Man, we think we got it going on. The Lord says, go back to kindergarten. 
But after three years of walking with Jesus, Peter now feels that he is ready. And they are at the juncture. They are, I mean, they are at the spot, the very ground zero of that moment where Peter will go from potential to destiny. And I am convinced that there are two reasons why we're extraordinarily vulnerable at that point. Number one, we're vulnerable because Satan hates us. He clearly sees when God invests potential in his children. And he hates us and he recognizes that moment. And secondly, we tend to be a little bit off guard because we feel like we are ready. And this particular moment will be right when Jesus is about to be arrested and die on the cross. If you read your Bible, you know that within just a few days, Jesus would go back to heaven and he would leave his work in the hands of these disciples who will be spirit-filled. So it is a very critical time for Peter. And the Lord is trying to get him on board and trying to warn him about this. And, and Peter's, in fact, in Luke's gospel, Peter issues the words, I'm ready. Because Jesus is saying, hey, this whole thing is about to go down. And Peter's saying, I'm ready. And Jesus said, you don't understand. I'm going to be arrested. You know, Jesus had been telling his disciples about a kingdom. He had talked a lot about a kingdom. And they were excited about the kingdom. They were even asking, you know, who's going to be first in the kingdom? And can one of us sit on your right and one of us sit on your left when you're reigning? And Jesus is saying, you guys don't get it. I'm going to have to go to a cross before I start my kingdom. Jesus is now drilling down and he's saying, guys, I'm about to be arrested. I'm going to go to the cross. And Peter's saying, it's not a problem for me saying that others may leave you, but I'm hanging with you all the way. Whatever happens, I'm going to be with you all the way. And Jesus is saying, Peter, Jesus being God, he had understanding of what was going on in the world. He knew what was going on in heaven. He was saying, Peter, you don't understand. I know something that you don't know. I know that Satan has gone directly to God and he has asked for permission to tear you up. And Peter I'm not worried about that. And Jesus is saying, listen, Peter, you better pray. Pray that your faith won't fail. And he said, Peter, I've prayed for you. And he said, after you've messed up, come back and help the rest of these guys. Peter's not listening. So now it's the night before his arrest and Jesus goes to the garden and he takes Peter, James, and John with them. And he says, guys, I'm just, and he was wrestling. I am convinced that the battle for your souls was won in the garden of Gethsemane when Jesus said, not my will, but your will be done. And so he is praying with everything he has got. He has not asked Peter, James, and John to pray for him. He is asking them to pray for themselves that they will be strong during this time. Peter's not worried about that. He goes to sleep. He's cool. He said to the Lord, hey, whatever happens, I'm with you all the way. I'm hanging with you. I won't leave you. I'm going to be there for you. What he doesn't understand is at that critical juncture between potential and destiny. Well, it isn't long before they come and arrest Jesus. I don't know what was in Peter's mind. I'm thinking that it went something like this. He'd seen Jesus do incredible things. I think he figured that when they come to arrest Jesus, he'd just do some kind of miracle and that would be it. And he had his trusty sword as a backup. If Jesus couldn't handle it, Peter would just swing his sword. I don't know if he thought he could just take on the whole temple guard and the Roman army, but he had his trusty sword with him. He would just do some business with that sword if he had to. How many of us have ever had bravado that was just crazy? Some of it alcohol-fueled, right? I mean, you know, I'm just going to take on the world. And so Peter had his sword there, and he said, you know, I'm ready to go. So he starts following Jesus, you know, and all of a sudden things get out of control. Because Jesus clearly is not going to stop the arrest from going down. I mean, he came into the world to die. So Peter is kind of freaked by that. Jesus is not stopping it. 
And so he pulls out his sword and he tries to take matters into his own hand. And it's so pathetic. You know, he's trying to cut somebody's head off. The only guy he takes on is the servant of the high priest. And he doesn't manage to cut off his head. He just slices his ear off. Embarrassed, Jesus has to reach down, pick up the guy's ear, put it back on. Now, that's what I want to see when I get to heaven. Talk about your cosmetic surgery. Pow. So now Peter's two, th- his two, his two things he was depending on are gone. Jesus doesn't stop the arrest. He clearly didn't do very much with his sword. And so now the Bible says that he begins to kind of follow at a distance to see what will happen. He has gone from the active, I can handle this, to now I'm just sort of here watching what goes down. And what he sees isn't good. They begin to, they begin to mess with Jesus. They begin to slap him and beat him and spit on him and Peter's... Now really scared. It's night, so the temple guards have started to fire because it's starting to get cold, and they, they begin to warm themselves while Jesus is being mistreated. And Peter is kind of like hanging there by the fire, watching out of the corner of his eye to see what happens to Jesus. The Bible's so clear on this, you know you know the Bible is clearly trying to make a point. Peter has been a macho man. He can handle it. He can handle the whole Roman army. And yet all of a sudden... A girl, and not just a girl, a servant girl, in the flickering light of the fire, looks at Peter and says, you were with Jesus. You were with him. Surely Peter can stand up to a little girl, a servant girl. But he said, I don't know the man. What are you talking about? A few minutes later, another servant girl comes to Peter and says, I know you, you were with him. Peter's saying, oh, shut up. I, I don't know this guy. What are you talking about? Then one of the men says, hey, you know what? You're a Galilean. I can tell by your dialect. You were with him. And at this moment, Peter does the one thing that he thinks will solidify his lie that he doesn't know Jesus. He swears, he curses and says, I tell you, I do not know the man. Jesus had told Peter when Peter was in his I can handle this phase, Jesus had said before the rooster crows three times, crows, you will deny me three times. And all of a sudden, Peter realizes he's done exactly what Jesus said. Luke records something that the other three gospels do not record. In Luke 22, the Bible says at that moment, Jesus turned and looked at Peter. Peter puts his head in his hands and he runs off. The Bible uses this expression, weeping bitterly. Is Peter crying for Jesus? Perhaps. But what Peter is crying really most about, listen, Peter is crying at the funeral of his dreams. He is, he is weeping at the casket of his destiny. He knew that Jesus had called him to do great things. He clearly understood that the Lord wanted him to be the leader. Jesus had invested all kinds of time and energy into Peter. Peter understood that he had been called to do something great. But at that moment, when those last words came out of his mouth, the cursing and swearing, when he said, I tell you, I do not know the man, and Jesus turned to look at him, and the rooster crowed, Peter realized it was over for him. Never would he get to do the things that God had designed him to do. 
The moment had revealed things in Peter that he didn't know he had inside of him. Let me ask you a question. How many God followers here today, you were in a crisis just like Peter. When that cowardice came out of Peter, you had something come out of you and you thought to yourself, I never dreamed that that was in me. And how can something like that be in somebody who follows Jesus? Surely it's all over for me. Peter went out and wept bitterly. Well, you guys know the rest of the story. The next day, Jesus would die on the cross for our sins. After six hours of hanging there, he would say, it is finished. I've done the job that God sent me to do. The reason you and I are going to be in heaven is because Jesus said those words. And because of what he did, it's finished. He had paid for our sins. They took his body off a cross. They laid it in a borrowed tomb. And three days later, Jesus did the incredible. He walked out of the tomb under his own power. Peter was hanging around, but he didn't feel like he ever fit in anymore. You ever go to church? I mean, there was a time when you went to church and you're so excited and you were part of everything, but you just failed. And now you're still going to church, but you don't really feel like a part of God's family. It's like I'm on the shelf now. I'm going to sing, going to listen to Mark, but I just don't feel like I belong. And that's where Peter was. He was excited that Jesus had risen from the grave. It was good to see him, but Peter understood very clearly that his his role was finished. And even after Jesus had been alive for a while, Jesus said, Peter said to the disciples, hey, I, I'm going, in essence, what he is saying is, I'm going back to fishing. I was called to be a follower of Jesus and to be a leader, but that's dead now. I'm going to go back to the one thing. I'm going to go back to the one thing I can do. I'm going to run back to where I used to be. I'm going to go fishing. And one of the real problems about being out of God's will is that we have an influence on other people. And Peter did. Six guys said, we're going with you. So I can see him, you know, as he gets out there in the boat. It's been a while since he's been doing some commercial fishermen. He's been following Jesus. Peter is saying to himself, well, at least I can do this. But he couldn't. Fished all night. Didn't catch a thing. Every time that empty net came back into the boat, Peter felt like he was in never, never land. I can't, I can't be what Jesus called me to be, and I can't fish. The next morning, though, in the early rays of dawn, there was a man on the, on the shore. And he, he asked him, you guys, how you guys doing? You know, when you're fishing, you ask, you see somebody running, are you, are you catching anything? And Jesus said, you guys catching anything? And he said, now, Jesus said, well, try the other side. And when they did, man, the Bible records they got 153 fish. And at that moment, Peter said, I know who that is. <laughs> There's only one man who can do that. He said, it's the Lord. And, and he does this Forrest Gump thing. I mean, he just jumps off the boat and swims to the shore. This has absolutely nothing to do with my topic today. Someday I'm going to bring you a couple of messages on what's it going to be like after you die. Because at this moment, Jesus has already risen from the grave. Listen, he cooks breakfast and he eats breakfast with them. For all of you who think you're going to be fluffy little things that, you know, float around on clouds and twanging on harps. Let me tell you what, you're going to be eating. Isn't that great? I love it. You won't get fat, but I mean, here's, we're going to talk about that someday, but that, that's a different topic, you know. So they have breakfast there and they eat together. You know, they're kind of having a good time and. After Jesus has fed Peter. This is so cool. I mean, I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't have time to develop this. The Gospel of John is just awesome. I'm, I'm reading it right now in my private devotions. When you get to the end of John chapter 20, it looks like the book is going to end. 
John 20 is where Jesus rises from the grave. Jesus meets with his disciples. You get to the end of the chapter. And, and the way John signs off right there, he talks about all the things that Jesus did and so on. And he talks about the gospel. It looks like the book ends at the end of chapter 20. But there are 21 chapters in John. The 21st chapter is, you can just call it recalculating. Because what God is going to do, God is going to pull Peter back into God's will. So now the guys are lying back. You know how you guys are after you eat, you know, just kind of want to rest for a while. And they're lying on the sand, they're talking, and all of a sudden Jesus begins to talk to Peter. Now let's look at it. This is in John chapter 21, verse 15. After breakfast, Jesus asked Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? We don't know what Jesus was asking specifically. Scholars and ministers through the years have wrestled with that. Was Jesus saying, do you love me more than you love these fish? Do you love me more than these other guys love me? What Jesus is about to do right now is to pull Peter back into God's will. If, if you've ever failed the Lord and you're thinking about, can I ever get back into God's will? Chances are you're asking the wrong questions. If I had been Jesus at this moment, and I'm going to deal with Peter, you know what I want to ask him? What were you thinking? You said you would go with me all the way, and a little servant girl freaked you out. What were you thinking? Why did you deny me? I mean, were the last three years lost on you, boy? I mean, you saw me do all these miracles. What were you thinking? I honestly believe that's the kind of thing that keeps many of us from coming back to Christ after we screw up. We think that when we get back to God, that the Lord is going to ask us, what were you thinking? Why did you do it? You told me you would never do that again, and you did it again, and you do it all the time. I mean, just the way that some of us nag our kids. I mean, we think that's what God is going to say to us when we come back to him. What were you thinking, and why did you do what you did? And can you promise me you will never do that again? What did Jesus ask Peter? Verse 15, do you love me? Jesus said, Peter, do you love me? Peter said, I'm your friend. Verse 16, do you love me? Peter said, I'm your friend. Verse 17, the third time. I mean, Peter now is in front of all these guys, and and he's kind of a little bit concerned about this because Jesus is singling him out. And what a strange question to ask. Do you love me? The third time Peter asked Jesus, or Jesus asked Peter, do you love me? The Bible says Peter was, you know, really got him because he understood exactly what Jesus was doing. Three times. Peter said, I don't know the man. I don't care about him. He's not important to me. He's nobody to me. Even cursed and swore and said, I don't know him. He's nothing to me. Three times now Jesus is calling Peter to answer one question. Not why did you do it, but do you love me? The third time, Peter was stripped down to bare metal, and he said, Lord, you know I love you. If you've ever failed the Lord, his question for you is not, why did you let me down? His question for you is, do you love Jesus? Because that's all that matters. Listen, I've been in church all my life, and I know it's possible to go to church and not love Jesus. It's possible to give money and not love Jesus. Paul said you can give your body to be burned and not love. 
It's possible to read your Bible and not love Jesus. I mean, that is the question this morning. Do you love Jesus? Everything in this book is about Jesus. Some of you have read this book and all you've come away with is a set of silly rules. Let me tell you something. This book is about Jesus. The first half says he's coming. The second half said he did come and he's coming again and he'll be king of kings and lord of lords and he is the savior of the world. That is what this book is about. Do you love Jesus? That's the only thing that matters. You know, I think, as I look at this chapter, what, here's the thing. What gets us out of God's will is eye trouble. I'm big. I can do it. I can handle it. I've gone through the potential phase. I'm ready for the destiny phase. That's what gets us out of God's will. Because at that moment, we're smarter than God. We're determining God. God says, go this way. But we're saying, hey, I can make this turn and I'll still be okay. That's what gets us in trouble. What Jesus is doing with Peter now is he is breaking Peter down. How many of us have gone through something in life where we have been humbled and we thought, oh man, this feels so bad. And yet through that humility, that's when God really begins to use you. I mean, how many of you have come to Christ at a really down time in your life? How many of you have come back to Christ during a really down time in your life? How many of you Christ followers have had a really bad moment in your life and it led you back to God's word and prayer and obedience to God? What that's all about is being humble. The Bible says God resists the proud. He gives grace to the humble. When you're humble before God, you know, that's what was happening with Peter. And really, the Lord kind of got three messages across to him. Number one, most important thing is to love Jesus. Second thing is, you know, when Peter was feeling the heat, and you can read this later in the chapter, Peter, like, tries to shift it off. He tries to shift the spotlight off of himself, and he looks at John. He says, what shall this man do? I don't mess us up sometimes. Well... I may not be following God, but I know somebody over there, and they're not following God either, and I actually think I'm doing better than them. The Lord said to Peter, you don't worry about John. You just do what I want you to do. You follow me. Third message the Lord was trying to get across to Peter is this. And this is a big one. You ready? He was saying to Peter, you must accept forgiveness. That sounds easy on the surface. But accepting forgiveness and pride do not go together. See, Peter had said, I'm the man. I I can handle this. And now they're on on the shore. Peter is having to accept the forgiveness of Jesus. Listen, when you accept Jesus' forgiveness, it reduces you down to where you say, I can make no claim on mercy. I can make no claim on forgiveness. I am a sinner. I'm coming to God, and God is forgiving me. I bring nothing. He brings everything. Guys, I'm going to risk offending some of you today, and I don't want to do this, but you know my job is to give you the truth. We have a very strange expression in our culture today, and it sounds good on the surface, but it's extraordinarily deceptive. People say to me sometimes, I don't know how I can forgive myself. What is that about? Listen, you can't be the defendant and the judge at the same time. Whether you forgive yourself is totally unimportant. In fact, it doesn't even make sense if you think about it. What does forgiving ourselves mean? Let me tell you what it means. It means I'm going to find some way to feel good enough about myself on my own terms. I've actually quit feeling bad about what I've done enough that I'm going to give myself forgiveness and absolution. 
or, or I'm going to just like submerge my guilt and find a way to feel good about myself again. Let me tell you something. There, that, would, that would be meaningless because after all, I'm not going to stand in the mirror when I am judged. I'm going to stand before Almighty God. And here's the deal. If he says I'm forgiven, I'm forgiven. I'm not worried about forgiving myself. If God says I'm forgiven, I'm clean. Listen to what he says in 1 John chapter 1, verse 9. The Bible says if we confess our sins to him, that means if we're honest about them. If we confess our sins to him, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all wickedness. In the back part of that verse, there are two verbs. The Bible says this, that if you will say the same thing about your sin that God says about your sin to him, he will do two things. Number one, he will forgive you of your sins. What that means is God will not hold it against you anymore. What happens to us when we sin? We say, but I still feel so dirty. But God doesn't just forgive you of your sins. The Bible says he cleanses you from your sins. And scripture says that in in the book of Psalms, that God not only cleanses, he forgets your sin. There's Peter on the shore. Never thought he would be in God's plan again. And now he's humbled. He's not asking who's the most important guy here, indicating that it's him. He's not saying, I'm ready to go. I think he is now. Listen, this is really cool. I love this. I'm trying to learn from this. Peter now has gone to the end of the line. He sees the other disciples as more important than him. I mean, he screwed up, and the Lord has forgiven him. He's in the back of the line. If anything happens here, Peter will be the last name called. He is now one of the bit players. A few days later, Jesus stands on top of a mountain says to them, guys, I want you to stay here in Jerusalem until the Holy Spirit comes. I'm about to leave, but I'm coming back. And then the Bible says he defied the law of gravity and he ascended into the heavens and left those 11 guys there to stay in Jerusalem and see what happened next. They went back to this, what the Bible calls a, a room upstairs or an upper room. And by this time, they had gathered with other Christ followers. Jesus' mother Mary was there, about 120 people. And they were just praying in this upper room. And they waited for 10 days in prayer. And they were just in expectancy, waiting for God to do something. All this time, Peter's just kind of like waiting to see what happens next. Then on the day of Pentecost, which is a feast day, and what an important day, because people had come from all over the world to Jerusalem to worship. They weren't sure what they were worshiping, that they had come all over, 15 different nationalities, if you read it in Acts chapter 2. People that spoke all kinds of languages, they were in Jerusalem. There was the sound of a rushing wind that blew through that upper room where they were, and all of a sudden it was like flickers of fire that came, and there was like this sort of visual thing of fire that like rested over all of these people, and then God began to give them the most incredible ability. Fifteen different nationalities, there are all kinds of dialects. God made all these very ordinary people suddenly able. It was like the reverse of what happened at Babel in the book of Genesis. It was like they all began to speak other languages. Hey, listen, I understand how incredible a miracle that would be. It's like the old saying goes, what do you call somebody who speaks more than two languages? Polylingual. What do you call somebody who speaks two languages? Bilingual. What do you call somebody who speaks one language? An American. (laughs) 
I mean, what if all of a sudden I'm talking to you and the next thing you know, you're hearing Chinese come out or you're hearing Spanish come out. I mean, I'm, I'm talking, I'm thinking in English, but out is coming another language. I mean, it's like this incredible miracle. And, and all these people from all these nationalities of the world, they have come to Jerusalem. They don't expect to hear anything in their language. And all of a sudden, they're hearing these people talk in their own language, these incredible things that God is doing in the world. And it just, woo, it exploded. And there was all kinds of noise and it was a cacophony. In the midst of this, there were cynics who looked at this and said, oh, we know what's going on. These guys are all drunk. Somebody needs to say something. Somebody needs to explain it. The other ten followers, the disciples, they were just sort of quiet. Here's Peter at the back. I mean, I'm in the back of the room. I'm in the back. I'm the last disciple to say But suddenly he can't stay still anymore. Somebody's got to explain this. And so he steps up and said, guys, I want you to understand these people are not drunk because it's just 9 o'clock in the morning, which says that Peter might have known something about being drunk at one point. But he said, I just want you to know these guys are not drunk. This is what the Bible talked about. And he starts talking. He doesn't know he's preaching. But he said, back, you know, that's what these Old Testament prophets were saying. Joel and Amos, this is the day the Lord was talking about and God has done extraordinary things. And he said, I need to let you know what happened. God sent his son into the world. And you know what you did? You crucified him and you hung him on a tree. And the spirit of God is so strong in that place that all these people in Jerusalem who just crucified Jesus, they like put their head in their hands and they're saying, what can we do? I mean, they had realized they had gotten off the path. They had hit the wall and that they had lost their destiny. They're thinking God sent his son into our world and we killed him. What shall we do? What a perfect guy to bring the next part of the message because you could title the next part of this message, Recalculating. Peter said, you killed him and you hung him on a tree. But I'm glad to tell you that God has raised him from the dead and he's made this same Jesus, both Lord and Christ. And he said, here's what you need to do. You need to repent. Do you know what repent means? It means get back on the trail. It means return from that old way of life. That's what I call you to do every weekend. Turn from your old way of life. And follow Jesus. And the Bible says that when Peter got through preaching, 3,000 people received Christ. He brought that same sermon a few days later and 5,000 people got saved. And by the middle of the book of Acts there, Peter had been so effective communicating this message that they had quit counting because they could not count all the people in Jerusalem who had received Jesus. And yet just a few weeks before, he was dead between potential and destiny. If I'm talking to you today and you're there, this is going to sound cliche, but it's true because God makes it true. It's not a bad thing. It's not the end of the world to fall down. The only problem is to stay down. It's to listen to the devil when he tells you, hey, you've messed up. You just may as well run this table. You may as well go all the way. You've messed up a little bit. You may as well mess up a whole lot. Stop in the name of Jesus. Stop and turn and say, I'm serving a God who recalculates, a God who can put me back on the trail. Let's pray. Father, thank you for what you've taught us today through your word. And I pray that your Holy Spirit will make it even cleaner and clearer than I could possibly make it. You're an awesome God. Father, if I were you, I would throw me away. I would have thrown me away many years ago. And yet you love us and you're gracious and you allow us to fulfill our destiny. Lord, I'm talking to some people today, Father, that you want them to be a lighthouse and they're like a flickering flashlight with dying batteries. God, I just pray in the name of Jesus, you will help them to get back on the trail. Father, help us to humble ourselves before you in Jesus' name.
Let's just pray for another minute. I know I've, I've, I've talked a long time today, but I do want to get this in this morning. You know, I talked a few moments ago about how Jesus died in our place and how he rose from the grave. I said to you that having a relationship with God is not based on what you do for God. It's what Jesus has done for you. Hey, faith in Christ is not a do thing. It's a done thing. Jesus has already done it. And all we do is just receive him. And if you're willing to invite him into your life, he will wash your sins away. He will give you a new life. He will write your name in the census book of heaven, and you will live forever. All is the free gift of God, but you must say yes. So I'm going to give you a prayer to pray. You don't have to use my words if you don't want. You can use your own words. But I'm going to pray a prayer. I'll pray it slowly. And if this is in your heart, because the Bible says God looks in the heart, you can just pray it with me. You can pray it out loud. You can pray it silently. But the important thing is that your heart responds to God. Here we go. Jesus, I know I've sinned. But I believe you died to save me. I believe you arose from your grave. And that you are alive in heaven. Forgive me and save me in Jesus' name. Amen. You just made the most important decision of your life. I know it was quick. You say, Mark, man, that was awfully quick. Did that really make that much difference? It did. But I want to give you something to help you have a fuller understanding. I've got a packet of stuff here. There's some DVDs in here and some great information. It is free. It won't cost you anything. If you just pray to receive Christ, I want to give this to you personally. You got your worship folder when you came in. Part of it's detachable. If you will, just fill your name and address out on there and uh, drop this in the offering plate or in the boxes by the back doors at the bottom of the stairs. And I will send this to you in the mail this week. If you don't want to wait, we don't want you to wait. If you prayed to receive Christ today, if you'll just fill out the card, all you have to do is bring it. I'm pointing right through the middle there. Right beyond those middle doors is guest services and New Spring Store. You can bring that card to either one of those places. Just say, I prayed with Mark today. Hand them the card. They will give you this. You can take it home with you. And you can start seeing how to follow Christ. Guys, I'm, I'm in overtime. I apologize for being so lengthy today. Two weekends from today, we start a brand new series called Pack and Heat. It's about surviving in an angry world. It is the series of the year. I'm telling you, it's going to be great. You're going to, we're going to enjoy it. I have a sermon coming up called The Cane Train, which is the most important sermon I'll probably bring all year long. So I really want you to be thinking about that. I know it's June. Invite your friends to be part of that.